Welcome to Leaders Upgraded, the place where people who want to upgrade and fast track their career, their life and their leadership journey tend to gather. I am your host, Tanvi Gautam, and I shall be speaking to the top 10% of the world's leading authors, CEOs, coaches and thinkers to bring you some of the best and brilliant ideas to fast track your way to success. Would you like an upgrade? Let's do this. This podcast aims to bring to its listeners ideas that are different and valuable and interesting on how to lead ourselves, our organizations in congruence with the times that we live in, times where we are transitioning from hierarchies to networks, from profit-driven organizations to purpose-driven organizations, and from where having a single career in a lifetime is being replaced by having as many as four careers in a lifetime. Today's episode is very special to me because I speak to one of my role models and icons, Seth Godin, who is a globally known authority in his field, a multi-award-winning author and thinker, and he lives on the edge. And he provokes others to explore that side of their potential, which demands that you step to the edge as well. But before we get into the podcast, I, at the time of recording this, it is International Work Out Loud Week. And no, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with going to the gym uh, or an aerobics class. On the contrary, the concept of work out loud has to do with the ability to share our work as work in progress with others so that they may contribute to it. So in the spirit of working out loud, I wanted to share with you what my day has been like because it connects with the podcast that you're listening to, quite frankly. I woke up this morning to an email in my inbox from one of the CEOs of a large MNC in the region, and he urgently wanted to speak to me about a few things that are going on in the team. And I spoke to him at length. I listened very carefully, and I said, you know, I honor your intention, and I, and I, and I think you are a rare breed of CEO that is taking the stance that you are. So your team is really fortunate to have you. But, you know, since you have sought my counsel, I, I must flag this for you that this initiative may not go as you're envisioning it. And uh, it may actually fail. And he thought about it for a moment and he said, I absolutely understand that there is a possibility of this failing, but I owe it to my people to give it a shot. And one of the things that Seth says in the podcast as well is that as we try and create something, if it can't fail, it doesn't count. And what that means is that we can't bulletproof our plans and our work to a point where we think, well, this is not going to fail. Well, that's not expanding our potential and that's not really doing creative work because we may make plans, but when they meet reality, a lot of things can get misaligned and we have to be ready for it. I mean, there's that famous line from Apollo 13 which says, failure is not an option. And I always tell people, failure is always an option. Fear is not. And I'm really grateful that I have an opportunity to work with 
the kind of leaders who I just told you about, who are willing to lead from in front of the firewall. And ultimately, what I'm hoping for is that the podcast series will will help inspire and create that next uh, group of leaders that knows how to lead from in front of the firewall. So as always, I am grateful for the time you take to listen to the conversation, and I shall be eagerly waiting to hear from you once you have heard the episode. About three days ago, I was looking at my whiteboard, which has got the names of people who I have always wanted to host on my show. And there has been one name that has been there for quite a while, but I have never had the courage to reach out and invite him. But obviously, the planets must have aligned because I did reach out and surprise, surprise, he did reply. And those of you who follow me on Twitter know I tweeted out saying he said yes. And some of you sent me a direct message saying we never knew you were planning to get married again. And I had to explain that this is not that yes. This is the yes I thought I was never going to hear because one of my favorite icons and role models, Seth Godin agreed to come on the show. So here we are. A very, very warm welcome to you, Seth. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And for the book, What to Do When It's Your Turn, and it's always your turn. Yeah, if I had to give a subtitle to this book, it would probably be Provoking Possibility and Inspiring Action. It's, it's an amazing, inspirational, alive and vibrant book that probably could be mistaken for a magazine. Could you tell us why you chose this format to begin with? Well, most people don't read books anymore. It's sad to say, but true. People walk up to authors all the time and say, you should congratulate me, I finished your book. <laughs> no, one, no one says that to Steven Spielberg about movies, but they say it about books. And uh, I didn't think it was appropriate for me to go through all the steps and pain and suffering to make a book that people didn't want to read. Mm. And so when I discovered this format that's published, the printed in Vancouver, that's on an indigo press. It's beautiful. It's color. It's loaded with photos. I thought, well, I could probably use that medium in a new way. And I'm always fascinated by that opportunity. And so I dove into it. And a little while later, I had a book. Wonderful. In fact, knowing you and your ability to keep reinventing the conversation, I wouldn't be surprised if you did make a movie and give Spielberg some competition for his money. <laughs> I would hold your breath. All right. So uh, let's talk about the times that we are living in. We have seen the transition from the agrarian economy to the industrial economy. And then some have talked about the fact that we are in a knowledge economy. I've even heard some people talk about um, transitions to the attention economy. And the term that you use is that we are now living in the connections economy. Um, and the way we lead and the way we make an impact in this economy is very different than any previous economy. Tell us more. Well, the word economy comes from the Greek for scarce. And so you can't have a knowledge economy in the age of the internet because knowledge is not scarce. Mm. There's no question that attention is scarce and getting more scarce. But what is attention good for? Well, it turns out that the real resource that we are building in a world of robots, in a world of, of globalism, in a world where almost anything can be made cheaper than ever before, the real resource is trust, mm -hmm. uh, the attention that comes from trust, the ability to spread an idea, the privilege of having 
a tribe, a group of connected people who all want to succeed. And so those are all elements of connection. Mm. In a connection economy, then, we deal with a new sort of abundance, an unlimited amount of choice, an unlimited number of people to follow, an unlimited number of people to connect with. Mm. But then the scarce challenge of can you be trusted? Can you earn the privilege of being heard? That's true. I, I think trust is at the core of of, of the uh, connection. And you know, I, I while I read your books and I, I hear your interviews, you talk about the fact that you know things in the connection economy, of course, are also changing very rapidly. There is a lot of change and there is a lot of unknown. And a part of leading in this era is to step into that unknown, not knowing whether one is going to succeed or not. And doing that evokes fear. And it triggers our primitive brain, which wants us to keep safe because we don't want to be judged. We don't want people to tell us uh, whether our work is not up to the standards that we thought it was, you know, was at. And you turn around and say that you can't play to safe. If it can't fail, it doesn't count. And when people are embraced with the choice of not knowing whether they will succeed or not, often they choose not even to try. And your thought there is that the only thing worse than failing is not starting. So when I when I think of the 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 tension that lies therein, where you have to create, you have to step up, and and you're scared of your wits. How do we feel the fear and do it anyway? A lot of people would like to understand how to make fear go away. That. If they could make the fear go away, then they would do the work they seek to do. But if we bargain with the fear, if we litigate with the fear, if we try to talk ourselves out of the fear, it gets stronger. The mm-hmm. lizard brain, or Steve Pressfield's word for it, the resistance, mm-hmm. is a wily creature. It is right at our brainstem. It has an enormous amount of biochemical power over us. And as soon as we embrace it and engage, not embrace it, as soon as we engage with it, we give it more power. So the answer is simple but uncomfortable. And the answer is that we seek out the fear. We celebrate the fear. We dance with the fear. That as soon as we acknowledge the fear, as soon as we look the fear in the eye and say, thank you for being here, now I'm going to go do my work, we unempower it. We instead use it as a compass, as a North Star, as a way of figuring out where the important work lies. Right. I mean, you have pushed the envelope so many times on so many fronts. Do you, do you still have that negative voice inside your head sometimes? Only when I'm doing my best work. Right. So it's almost a signpost to the fact that you are doing your best work. I like that idea. Oh, abso- absolutely. I mean, you know, there are... I can give a speech to 500 people now without getting nervous. But if I'm going to give a new talk, completely new, if I'm going to need to bring ideas to the table that might not resonate. When I posted my blog post this morning, it was in an area that had less comfort for me, less expertise. So, yes, the lizard brain shows up and says, well, why why don't you just post something that everyone will like instead? Mm. And you could do that for a little while, but then you're going to be banal and everyone is going to like it. That's true. So, so it, you know, I, li- I like that saying, the people often say that courage is like a muscle that grows by using it. And it sounds like 
That's something we have to try and do almost on a daily basis um, as we try and overcome these voices in our heads that can get really, really loud. So, you know, I want to I just interrupt for one sure, second. Though. Sure. Courage, courage is a very particular word. Mm-hmm. And for me, courage means being willing to put yourself at physical or a significant risk in the service of a bigger goal. Mm-hmm. And fear is not risk. Mm-hmm. Fear is a mistake about risk. So it doesn't take courage to get on an airplane if you are afraid of flying Mm -hmm. because flying is not dangerous Mm -hmm. you just have a storytelling problem you are not actually exposing yourself to risk so is is it something like more the dealing with the inner narrative more than anything else uh when we are talking about fear yeah fear is is i think it's accepting the inner narrative as opposed to dealing dealing with it yes okay okay so you know when whenever we are trying to do something that's different. You know, there are two types of critics we could face. One is, of course, the inner narrative or the inner critic that we have to learn to to deal with, and we have to change that narrative before we can move forward. But then there's also the external critics that are ever willing and eager and also generous in telling you what they think of you and your work. And uh, I'm a parent like you, and, and so are some of our listeners. And, you know, when I look at my son and the world that he's going to occupy, while there's a great degree of connectivity, which of course does not equal connection, right? It's a world where people's self-esteem can precariously balance at, you know, the number of likes and retweets and shares uh, that you are getting online. And, and, and I've seen this issue for many adults too, not, not just uh, the, the younger people. So What's your suggestion as we're trying to bring around the next generation of Seth Godin 2.0s, the ones that will bypass the publishing industry and go straight to the reader? And if a book does not do well, we'll say, well, I understand this book was not for you. How do we strengthen that core? How do we liberate ourselves from that need to be liked and the need to be right? Well, I think asking the question as brilliantly as you have is 80% of the battle. Uh, let's just discern, <clears throat> discern for a moment the difference between the truth and our perception of the truth. If you look at the reviews of every single best-selling book on Amazon, they have more one-star reviews than any other books on the site. That the negative reviews do not cause something to not succeed. Negative reviews do not cause failure. That good work attracts negative reviews, negative restaurant reviews, negative book reviews, negative Yelp reviews, because critics are usually wrong. And so we have to get past this idea that we can be externally slowed down by these reviews. No, it's the internal challenge that we have, not the external challenge. The internal challenge is we already have that voice in our head. We already have the negative review in our head. We already have the critic. And then when we see it echoed in the outside world, this person will never amount to anything. This person's a fraud. This person, this person, this person. It amplifies our lizard brain. And that is what paralyzes us. Now, I'm not talking about eight-year-olds. An eight-year-old surrounded by bullies lives in torment. And we have to figure out how to get our kids 
through adolescence when the culture just skewers them wide open because the culture keeps rewarding uh, the critic and keeps punishing the, the one who would dare to do important work. So that's a parenting challenge. It's not one that's easy. But I think we have to acknowledge to ourselves and to our kids over and over and over again that the most important critic is the one in our head. That's true. That's that's true. And I, I frankly feel like some of the, you know, the, the bullying aspect that you brought up, the kids who bully and get away with it in the playground end up replaying those ideas somewhere in the boardroom. I mean, I've seen that happen in my own work. So I think uh, dealing, being able to stand up and say, I'm, I'm standing by what I think is the right approach is is crucial at a very, very early age. But talking of, you know, this technology and, you know, being connected and so vulnerable and being online. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about your relationship with technology because you're a person who replies to his own email. God knows you replied to mine in less than five minutes. And here we are four days later having this conversation. Yet, unlike many other authors and thought leaders, I don't see you tweeting. I mean, I know your blog gets auto-tweeted on Twitter, but if I'm correct, I haven't seen you on Facebook or any of the other platforms. Is there like a conscious choice behind staying away from, from that and yet responding to emails that are coming to you? It was a very intentional choice. And, you know, there's no good answer in an asymmetrical world. There are far more people, and I'm privileged to say this, who want to email me than I want to email. And so it doesn't scale, right? But what I decided were a couple things. One, anonymous criticism truly undermines my ability to do my work. Uh, if I was tweeting every day, I would be exposed to dozens or hundreds of people who could and would speak up. And that was not going to improve my work. Uh, maybe your work improves because you read what people tweet about you, but mine does not. And the second thing is that I have devoted an enormous amount of my life to blogging. And as a result, some people say I'm very good at it. And if I'm going to go on Twitter and Facebook, it doesn't make any sense for me to be mediocre at it that to go spend any time at all doing something where I'm just not going to be particularly generous or focused or good at it seemed to me to be a mistake for two reasons. One, it was going to take away time from my ability to blog, which means I would start being mediocre at that as well. And two, it wouldn't be fair to people who wanted to see what I was going to do in those media because I wasn't actually going to do a very good job. And the decision to choose is one that too many people avoid. Mm. We too often want to please people in the short run, and then we hook up to long-term commitments that stretch us thin, and we end up becoming mediocre. I, you know, My advice to most people who work in a company is they should skip one or two or three meetings a day and take that time that they're not sitting in a room doing nothing, to take the time that they are sitting in a room doing nothing, and instead... Do something extraordinary. Do something generous. Do something that creates value. If you did that for an hour or two a day, I think the boss would forgive you for not going to meetings. 
interesting idea that. So kind of fitting on the idea of commitment and people within organizations. I think somewhere people like you and I are very, very privileged in that we get to wake up every morning and focus on our canvas and what we want to paint there. And yet many people are in organizations where they say, we want you to do your best work. We want you to be innovative. We want you to be committed. But at the very first sign of innovation or commitment, they recede very quickly into the safe and comfort zones of mediocrity. So what is your advice to people who are within organizations who, who, are, who believe it is their time? Uh, to deal with this environment? Okay, so let's first decide that there are two kinds of organizations. There are organizations that are actually like that, and there are organizations that people think are like that. Mm. If you work in an organization that is actually like that, you should leave. But when you say that to people, they, they realize that their organization might not actually be like that, but that they're just thinking, my boss won't let me. I would like to innovate, but my boss won't let me. Well, of course she won't, because what you're saying to her is if you make a mistake, it'll be her fault because she said it was okay. But if you get it right, you'll get the credit. Mm. Well, why would anyone take that deal? Right? Mm. That the way you make innovation happen in an organization is you give away credit and you take responsibility. If you are always taking the blame and learning from it, and you are always giving credit to other people when things work, there will be a line out the door of people who want you to do that for them. Mm. And that is where change comes from in organizations. We don't get the umbrella insurance policy that says, go ahead and try whatever you want. And if it doesn't work, don't worry. Mm. Right. The, the organization isn't built that way. But if we say, I did this little experiment, it worked. Why don't you go tell the board you did it? And if we say, I did this little experiment and it failed, it's my fault. I'll take full responsibility. When we start doing those things, we discover the organization is a lot more flexible about our innovation. Yeah, it reminds me of that quote, right, where a lot of things in organizations would get done if people didn't mind who got the credit for it. <laughs> exactly. Although it does require for many of us to leave our, our, our egos uh, out the door. And and for me, when I think about leaders, I, I always tend to believe that leadership really is a celebration of the potential of other people. And if you're able to do that is is when, you know, you enable the collective potential of, of everyone around you. As we go towards wrapping up, uh, I wanted to discuss this one idea, which I found very fascinating in your work, which is that a lot of us start out by saying we want to be the best at what we do in the world. And God knows the personal branding revolution wants you to own and conquer your niche and be seen out there for what it is. But you have some very interesting thoughts on why that might likely never happen. Would you share that with us? Uh, well, I'm not sure if I agree with myself on this. I, I think that it can happen and that the real win is to be seen at, as the best in the world at something. Mm. But understanding what best in the world means is an important first step. Mm -hmm. By best, I don't mean in a measured, quantifiable way. Mm -hmm. Best just means that your customer thinks you're the best at this. Mm -hmm. And world doesn't mean the entire planet or the galaxy. World means the consideration set of the person that you're trying to reach. If you have the best gym, it just means the best gym in my neighborhood 
for someone like me to do the kind of thing I want to do. And the mistake that we make is compromising on our way to best by trying to please too many people Mm. or compromising on our way to best by trying to do too many things. Mm -hmm. That if we can obsess at being the one in a category, even if we start with the smallest conceivable category, it's from that platform that we will be able to grow our work because you get in the habit of being the best at something and then you can be the best at another thing. But too often we are pushed to be replaceable mediocre cogs in a giant machine and the system wants us to do that so that it can ignore us. But Mm. I think we have the ability to dig deep for the tribe we are part of Mm. and say, I matter. This work matters. You would miss me if I was gone. And that idea of being missed can inform so much of our work. Well, Seth, to me, you are the best at what you do in the world. And I just want to thank you for having found the time. I know you don't say yes to too many podcasts. So this is very, very special for me. I shall always cherish this conversation we had. Thank you again for being so generous with your time and wisdom. It's a privilege. And thank you for the work you do. And on behalf of the people who follow you, I want to say thanks. All right. Thanks, Seth. That concludes this episode of Leaders Upgraded. But wait. Your journey is just getting started. Go to www.leadersupgraded.com for more insights, more inspiration, and more tools to continue the journey. And if you have someone who you would like to nominate for the podcast or a particular topic you'd like us to cover, then also visit www.leadersupgraded.com and let us know. If you like this episode, please do share it. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And I look forward to continued upgrades with you. Take care.